Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 85 of the Criterion Reflections podcast, a program in which we are going through all of the films associated with the Criterion Collection in the chronological order of their original release. And here we are, landing in November of 1971 with Claude Jutra's Mon Oncle Antoine, a uh, Canadian film, uh, kind of a rarity of sorts in the Criterion Collection. There's not a whole lot of Canadian representation in the CC, but uh, here it is, and this is reputed to be the best Canadian film ever. <laughs> so uh, we're going to get into some of the uh, reasons that this film has a towering reputation within the uh, annals of Canadian cinema, and uh, we're just going to talk about this very uh, charming, thought-provoking, and I think very well-rounded and enjoyable coming-of-age story set in rural Quebec in the late 1940s. Uh, I've got a great turnout for this. This is kind of a uh, what might be seen as a bit of a minor title in the uh, you know the vast scope of films covered by Criterion. This is Spine Number Four Hundred and Thirty Eight. Uh, released in 2008 on DVD, a double disc set as a matter of fact. It has not yet been upgraded to Blu-ray, and there may be some extenuating circumstances that uh, make it less likely that it will be upgraded, but I certainly think it would be deserving of such. Um, but let's go ahead and get our guest lineup going as uh, we uh, hear what other people have to say about this uh, you know, very uh, enjoyable and, and I think significant and uh, impactful film. Uh, so we're just going to write down the order. Uh, let's go with Josh Hornbeck. Hello, Josh. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Excellent. Yeah. And then going uh, over to Phil DeCane, my uh, fellow Michiganian here. Phil, how are you doing? Welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. Doing very well, David. Thanks for having me on again as well. Excellent. Yeah, well, these we are the three Americans of the bunch, and then we're going to go jump north of the border. Uh, let's go over to Richard Doyle. Richard, how you doing up there in Winnipeg? Hey, I'm doing fine. Glad to be here. Talk about a, one of my rare opportunities to talk about a Canadian film in this, on the show. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's good to have you as well. And then we've got our uh, expat Canadian over there in the UK, David Seeley. Welcome back as well. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Excellent. Well, yeah, I really am. I'm very, very intrigued and very thankful that we have such strong interest in this film. Uh, it's not one that I hear talked about a whole lot. Uh, even when we've had uh, years ago our, you know, Blu-ray upgrade wish list, I don't think this was ever mentioned. Um, and so, you know, let's just go ahead and get right into it. Uh, Claude Jutra, he was a, uh, a fairly young filmmaker at this time, uh, kind of came of age in the early 60s. Uh, I guess I also should say that this film is available on the Criterion channel. So if you are one of those uh, collectors who's only into the Blu-rays or you know hasn't quite made a familiarity with this film enough to warrant a purchase, uh, you can sample not only the film, but also most of the supplements that are available uh, on the disc release. There's a, a short film by Claude Jutra called A Cherry Tale, which he co-directed with Norman McLaren, and a couple documentaries, one of which was his appearance on a TV show, kind of doing an interview piece, and then a very helpful uh, sort of context-providing full-length documentary, Claude Jutra, The Unfinished Story, which really gets into the details of his life and has some pretty generous uh, samples from some of the other films that he's made both before and after Mon Oncle Antoine. Uh, so this kind of re represents the pinnacle of his career, I guess it's probably fair to say. Uh, maybe we should just talk a little bit about the director. We kind of often do that. Uh, 
especially for a first time and, and to this point, an only timed uh, appearance in the Criterion Collection. Is there anybody who would like to sort of spontaneously take up that task of telling us a little bit about Jutra? Maybe Richard or, or David, our, our Canadians uh, of the bunch here. Okay, I'll take that unless Richard uh, wanted to jump in. I'll jump in if I have anything to add. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, Claude Jutra uh, is, was, uh, well, up until recently anyway, which we'll talk about later, uh, quite a... Uh, seminal figure in the Canadian film industry. Um, certainly when I was growing up, his name was uh, uh, held in quite high regard uh, uh, as an innovator and quite a, uh, an important figure in helping develop uh, the, the Canadian film industry. He, uh, he was actually uh, went to medical school and uh, he uh, got a medical degree at a very early age, which is, is obviously quite uh, unusual. So he's, he was obviously quite a clever chap. Uh, but he, his real love was the cinema. And so in the 60s, he uh, fell into the National Film Board of Canada, which at the time is a publicly funded body that was the only real outlet for uh, creative pursuits in filmmaking at the time. Uh, and so he uh, uh, developed a career there and, and managed to hone his skills by making a lot of short films and documentaries. And he made a couple of feature length films uh, and he managed to uh, gain a, a really good reputation and actually befriended people like Truffaut. Uh, and then uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, he, uh, he did his, as you say, kind of he hit his kind of creative peak with, uh, with uh, a couple of documentaries in this film that we're talking about today. And I don't know if um, you want to talk about after uh, Monica. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into sort of, yeah, the later stages of his, his, of his life and, and maybe even some of the more recent developments and kind of his story, his reputation. I'd, I'd like to sort of save that for maybe the, the postscript, if you will, after we talk about the film. But yeah, I think you've done a nice job summarizing the, uh, you know, the impact of, of Claude Jutra. I mean, there were awards named after him and, and he really was kind of a, a pillar of Canadian cinema, especially of the more artistic variety. Uh, Richard, do you have anything else you want to toss in just to kind of, you know, fill out that picture? Sure there. I, I would just say that uh, his rise sort of mirrors the rise of Canadian film in this period because, as David alluded to, in the 60s, with very few exceptions, the only outlet for making films was the National Film Board, which did mostly documentaries and animated shorts, of which they were, they were generally considered world-class. They won many uh, Academy Awards for animated shorts, for example, in that period. But um, in 1967, there is a change in the film board to form the, the, the Film Development Corporation to encourage the making of Canadian feature films. And Jutra is like one of the first people to really avail himself of this funding and make a feature in, under the auspices of the NFB. And it, that's sort of the first stage in the real development of Canadian feature filmmaking. As far as like a, a kind of a fictional narrative, this is sort of a yeah. semi-autobiographical story. Um, and it, it feels like a very well-made, very professional, top-class production. And I think, you know, that is probably one of the reasons because of its sort of foundational nature. Uh, the fact that it was maybe one of the very first Canadian films 
created and produced on this level of kind of artistic quality, uh, professionalism, as well as the story that it tells as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the life of uh, rustic, rural Quebec, uh, really ordinary salt of the earth you know Canadians with with all of their you know strengths and weaknesses their their quirks and their fallibilities uh, their character their charm I think this all comes through quite well and uh, you know Jutra you know even though this was not his semi-autobiographical story uh, I think uh, David you kind of mentioned he went to medical school and graduated at a young age he came from a pretty prosperous family I think he's uh, from Montreal by birth if he wasn't born there he, he grew up in that society and uh, this feels like a pretty far distance from Montreal, right? Indeed, indeed. I think the the um, the screenplay, uh, the the chap who wrote the screenplay, it was more of an autobiographical uh, uh, elements from his life that that uh, they collaborated on the project together. Yes, and his name is uh, Clement Perron, uh, and I guess maybe to Jutra's credit, he recognized that Perron's personal story might make for more of a compelling uh, film telling than uh, you know, <laughs> than his own upbringing in a fairly prosperous, uh, artistically creative home. I think in that in that documentary I referenced earlier, you know, uh, he kind of grew up with the cream of Canadian intelligentsia, as, as, certainly from the Quebecois Montreal perspective. You know, uh, having dinner parties and you know talking to people who wrote for magazines and professors and artists and academics. Just you know all the uh, yeah kind of the you know you know the upper crust as far as people who are interesting, creative, expressive. Uh, that was Jutra's life. But you know, that's not necessarily the kind of story that people flock to the cinema to see. They like seeing kind of ordinary people uh, and their lives put on display here. So, okay, so we, we've got a little perspective on Jutra. Josh, let me ask you, do you have any experience or, or previous exposure to Claude Jutra's work? And then I'll ask the fame of Phil. Uh, no, this is my first encounter with Jutra's work. You know, I think in our last recording, uh, I was on for Silence a few mm -hmm. episodes ago. Yep. I mentioned that when I was first signing up for episodes, I was looking for ones that didn't have very many people signed up for it at first. Uh, and so I was like, I don't think very there were very many people signed up for this. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll just throw my name on here. This is one I haven't seen and this will give me an excuse to watch it and uh, I don't know much about it and whether I like it or not this will uh, provide great conversation. So uh, yeah. this was uh, I'm, I'm coming to this pretty fresh and uh, am eager to get into uh, a conversation about it. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard and, and uh, Phil and, and David all kind of came on board a little bit later. You were kind of one of those ground floor guys <laughs> with me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but again, I'm, I'm really thrilled that we have all these different uh, folks with interest in this film. Phil, tell me a little bit about your, uh, you know, experience with Jutra or perhaps this particular film. Yeah, no, like, yeah, like Josh, uh, it's kind of same with me. I, um, this is my first experience with him as well. I, uh, I came to this film about 10 years ago, not long after it came out on DVD. And I, I rented it, and I loved it. And um, it's kind of stuck with me kind of all these years. Uh, you know, the most memorable thing is sort of the climactic scenario where they go to recover the, the teenage boy's body, and they, they lose it in the snow, and they've got to go back and get it. And that was all very memorable to me. 
And mm-hmm. um, when I saw this show on your schedule, I, I wanted to talk about it. And I, and I revisited the film a couple of times over the last couple of months. And um, I was struck by how much film and how much running time goes by before that clim- climax happens. I was like, oh, yeah, this is a wonderfully ruminative sort of slice of life portrait of this of this town. And um, almost everything I've learned about Claude Jutra and Quebec and, and French Canadian cinema, I've just learned in the last couple of months. <laughs> it's all been yeah, very yeah, fast. Sure. And maybe <laughs> me that's me as a sort of a stereotypical American who sometimes doesn't know as much about other societies as he should. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, and I love the film again, watching it a, a couple of times here in the last couple of months. And um, I think there's a lot to dig into. Yeah, well, let me tell you a little bit about my experience with this film. I've I've had the DVD, of course. I've been Criterion complete for really the better part of a decade now, uh, so it's been sitting there on my shelf. And actually, there were a couple times over the years where I would pop it in because it just felt like, yeah, this seems like kind of a kind of a mellow, low key, relatable type of movie. You know, just kind of ordinary people, a boy kind of growing up and learning about how the world works and all that. But despite the that openness to it, I, I would pop it in and just wasn't quite feeling it or I was up too late and, you know, getting a little naughty. And this is kind of a slowish type of movie. This isn't one that's going to grab you, smack you around and, and startle your senses with all of its, you know, cinematic innovations or bold, wild, crazy ideas. It, it really is. Uh, how ordinary people live in a, in a small town out in the sticks in kind of a working class, uh, semi-industrial milieu. And so it really wasn't up until, you know, the obligation, if you will, of recording this podcast and talking about it uh, that I really dug in. Um, but once I did that, it's like, wow, there, yeah, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to chew on here. There's a lot to enjoy. But again, this is not going to grab you uh, if you're just looking for quote-unquote thrills and so when we talk about you know the the greatest canadian film ever made and and it has won a number of polls i think the most recent uh, tiff poll from the toronto international film festival now places at number two I don't have the pronunciation down but it's basically a film called the fast runner uh, based on uh, inuit stories uh, in, in native uh, canadians and uh, native indigenous people uh an adaptation of, of some of their tales uh, that uh, won the most recent poll, which I think was 2015 or something like that. So I haven't seen that, but it's definitely one that's caught my interest as I've sort of read up on it. But this is still very high-ranking, very foundational, influential uh, Canadian film. Now, Josh, you're up there in Seattle. Phil, you're over on the east side of the state. You know, we're all kind of men of the northern climes here. So <laughs> I, I wondered if there was a sort of a certain uh, fondness or relationship to Canada that might have driven your interest. But uh, yeah, I appreciate everybody's kind of uh, you know, fresh take on that. Phil, I think I've kind of already heard your first response to this film. You, you know, you, you saw it a decade ago. It seems to stick with you. Let me ask Josh, what was your impression? You've, you've just recently made acquaintance with this film. So let me just ask kind of your opening take on what did you think of Mon Oncle Antoine? I think there are some things that I really like about it. But on the whole, it is one that hasn't really grabbed me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I've said many times on this podcast that there are films that it takes me two or three viewings, sometimes spread out over years for me to really kind of dig into something. And I think we'll get into more uh, of some of the things that I find that don't quite work as well for me about it as we dig into it. And and I think especially towards the end, I think there are some things uh, 
the fi- some of the final moments um, that uh, I'll be really curious to talk about, especially as we get into kind of the later revelations of Jutra's life that I think reflect back on uh, some moments of the film that may have just influenced how I see the film as well. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That I think it, it's hard to disentangle that, especially on a first viewing. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think that that's part of that experience that uh, that for me will be. It'll take some time to 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 think about that. I think it's a it's a fine coming of age story that has some some lovely moments throughout. I do think that the uh, the moment Phil that you talk about the the going to retrieve the body is the most striking sequence in the entire film that is it's just really there's some riveting moments there. Um, I think that some of the portraits of life and the small town life there, they are reminiscent of some of the 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 Renoir moments in things like uh, Day in the Country. And uh, I think there are some really lovely, lovely individual moments throughout the film uh, that uh, for me never quite coalesced into a, a whole that, uh, that worked for me. Fair enough. All right. This is a good, honest reaction. Uh, Richard, why don't you kind of give us a little synopsis of, uh, you know, maybe maybe set us up for the film you know uh, what are we getting into here and maybe what's your been your experience is this some a film that you've been familiar with for a long time and and how is this film presented to uh you know, young canadians or you know canadians who are interested in film i'm kind of curious to know how it ranks in sort of the national lexicon if you will well i mean it's interesting i didn't really i had heard of this film but i didn't see it till it got a criterion release um okay i think uh, I, I liked it quite a bit, I, and I, I like it now. I think understanding why it's often at the top of Canadian, you know, Canadian film lists created by critics and sort of the Canadian film uh, media is worth noting because one of the things that's I think both helped and hindered the Canadian film industry is that there's a very large consensus that what Canadian film should be doing is promoting Canadian identity and Canadian life. Mm-hmm. And that this kind of documentary style film is the pinnacle of Canadian film. But I don't know that that's a sentiment shared by the Canadian public. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the name David Cronenberg comes to mind. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, he's, he's made some incredible films, uh, and they do even have, I would say they have a Canadian sensibility. Many of them are shot on location in Canada, and he kind of has his, you know, I'm a you know white North American guy, but I'm not an American, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and I feel like, you know, Cronenberg belongs in that conversation of greatest Canadian films ever made or greatest Canadian directors, even though he's not necessarily representing the, the, the lives and times of average Canadian people. Yes, and it's taken decades for sort of the Canadian film journalists to come around on Cronenberg. Like his, right. the, reception, the reception of his earlier films was extremely hostile. With a, <laughs> yeah, with a notable, You're giving us a bad uh, name, right, right? Yeah, with a notable article coming out in when when his first film, his first feature, Shivers, came out, saying, you know, this film is terrible, and you should all know about it because you paid for it. 
Uh, and then let's talk about Adam Agoyan, who uh, was recently interviewed by Aaron West over on our kind of fellow Criterion Now. Uh, he had a, a nice connection there to uh, talk about Agoyan, who's um, films a kind of a nice package of his work as being featured on the Criterion channel right now. Now, he's maybe a little bit more of that conventional style. I mean, he's not dealing with, you know, shocking horror, although his films definitely have a lot of gravity, a lot of weight, a lot of heaviness to him and all of that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he, he ranks in that conversation or, or if he's seen as a Canadian filmmaker or just a director who happened to be from Canada. I don't know. You got any comments on that? He was, he was, um, he had a period of very large popularity in the nineties and, um, sure, I, right. I think he was, he was very much endorsed as a Canadian filmmaker, but I think his, his star has fallen since the sweet hereafter and that you don't really hear that much about him anymore. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, David, let's get you in the mix here. Kind of what, what is your kind of take? I mean, how long have you been acquainted with uh, Mon Oncle Antoine and, and, uh, you know, what do you just have to say in that general sense about uh, the film's um, significance as a specifically Canadian work of art or, or just the film in general? Let's just kind of get that going. Well, I, I've been familiar with it for quite a long time because, as I said, it's always uh, held been held in quite high esteem. And uh, I, I went to film school, and in film school they showed us this film as obviously a, as a big representation of, of Canadian cinema. So I, I've seen it uh, at various times throughout my life since I was sort of 18, 19 years old. So, mm -hmm. uh, And I, I do personally, um, although some of the people you talk about, Cronenberg um, and uh, Adam Agoyan, and certainly Denny Arcon is another one who's uh, quite a... Uh, quite a great filmmaker who, who doesn't seem to get a lot of love internationally. But um, I, I think personally this film does kind of deserve uh, its, its reputation and its place, um, mainly because I think it, it is for that very reason, because it is a very Canadian story and it is a, a very much rooted in a very kind of important time in Canadian history. And I think some of the things you mentioned as well, that it does uh, reflect a quality and a, and, a, and a really excellent craftsmanship, which is not necessarily something that you would have always associated with Canadian film. Certainly when I was growing up, uh, the Canadian, uh, and I'm sure Richard will understand what I mean by this, is that Canadians to a certain extent have always had a little bit of a kind of inferiority complex Mm. kind of culturally living next door to, to the United States. And because we are uh, constantly uh, inundated with Canadian, or, sorry, American television and American films and American music and just all the pop culture in general. Uh, so Canadians always, uh, at least, I don't think it's like this so much nowadays because I think the Canadian film industry now is much more robust now and there's a lot more stuff that happens there. Uh, but back in the day, it was very rare for even a film like this to even get made, let alone get any kind of recognition abroad. So I think that is a big part of uh, why it got so much attention. But it does live up to it. If you watch the film, I think at least personally that the film does have great qualities 
and uh, and it and it's beyond just the basic storyline about the community and about this boy. It's also a film really about just kind of awakenings of it of all kinds, both the boy himself, his awakening to understanding a bit more about how the world works and about how the people around him and his his sort of sexual awakening and his uh, but it's also about the community's awakening and and uh, the the sort of the hardships and the the lives uh, of the people who lived in these communities. And we can talk a bit about the sort of historical context of the mm-hmm. film. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that now, or, or we can. Yeah, let me. Let, I'll, I'll take my shot at a synopsis. Uh, sure. Who is this Uncle Antoine, and who's the nephew that would be talking about his Uncle Antoine, and and where is this taking place? So, uh, we've already talked about sort of the the countryish setting, kind of out in the the sticks there. Um, and there's a lot of sticks out there in Canada. <laughs> you know, there's a few big cities, but there's a lot of wide open spaces, and uh, and this is a set in the asbestos mining. region. Region. In fact, uh, one of the links that I, you know, I received uh, talked about an actual town. The, the name of the town is Asbestos in, in Quebec. It's in the southeastern section of that province, not that not actually all that far from the American border. And of course, Asbestos, you say that word nowadays, that's like, that's a bad word. <laughs> you know, that's like cancer-causing poison. But uh, at one point in time, not that long ago, it was a major source of revenue and, of course, uh, a fireproof, a protectant it was considered. A, a way of keeping people safe until it was suddenly discovered it's not a way of keeping people safe yeah, as long all. as you don't breathe <laughs> as long as you don't breathe yeah exactly <laughs> and of course the 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 men who were responsible for extracting that substance from the earth uh, lived very short and often pretty brutal lives and that's really kind of the the opening salvo of this film uh, you know, there's a subtitle. In fact, Phil, you may have some comments about that. Uh, yeah, the subtitle uh, translated in English is basically just, uh, you know, asbestos mining territory in Quebec. Well, although it's a little bit more of a lyrical once upon a time type of thing <laughs> as far as the actual uh, French uh, subtitles uh, and the, the little text there introduced it to. Uh, Phil, you want to go ahead and <laughs> make your uh, comment there? You... <laughs> yeah, yes, it was. I just kind of had the I just kind of had the film on earlier today yeah. and sure um i just i saw those french titles there and i said there's got to be more to that than what they're translating and i'm trying to find it right now and i can't but you're right it <laughs> is it's fine, a little yeah. bit more of a lyrical sort of poetic take yeah. on it um in the land of quebec in the asbestos region not so long ago Exactly. A much, you know, kind of an illusion there that uh, this is in living memory, especially of 1971. Yeah, but but as David alluded to, you know, times had already changed. In fact, even at the time that the making of this film, Quebec was in a bit of tumult as they were, you know, again, that, that kind of eternal uh, back and forth. Do they assert our national identity as French Canadians? With kind of our own distinctive culture, language, customs, etc., or do we stay part of the larger Canadian Union and, and all of that? So that's that's kind of some big meta context. But really, this is about the lives of working class people who don't really have a lot of options in life. You can work for the mine. Uh, you can, you know, do the the logging camp thing, which is kind of the big choice being made by one of the characters right off 
off the bat. Or you could eke out a living in town, uh, as we see Antoine, the, the titular figure. He's both the owner of a general store, and he's also the town undertaker. <laughs> so kind of a, a multitasker of sorts. Uh, he's got a bit of prominence, I guess you could say, in that village. But as we learn over the course of the film, he's not a happy man. Uh, he's he's got a place of some respectability and some prominence, but uh, it's not all that fulfilling. Uh, he's a kind of a foster dad to a, a couple of young people, uh, uh, Benoit and uh, Carmen, uh, two young you know people who have been, well, Benoit is a, an orphan and has been kind of brought into the household. Carmen is uh, almost like an indentured servant. I think her, her father has kind of given her over to work for the store, and he gets a pretty generous cut of Carmen's wages. Uh, there's another uh, older man, Fernand, uh, who's actually played by the director, Claude Jutra, who was both an actor and a director. And really, he was kind of an interesting polymath. He, he did a lot of different things. He was very accomplished artistically in a lot of different uh, levels. Um, but that's basically the setup. You've got this store, you've got this uh, kind of hard scrabble working class life, and you've got the story of, of uh, his name is uh, Jos Poulin. He's the guy that we meet up front who decides after, you know, who knows how long he's just had it with working in the mine. Uh, he knows that working there is a pretty high occupational hazard. There's a funeral right at the beginning where we see uh, one of his co-workers who's laid to rest. And even though he looks like a wizened, weathered old man, uh, he's really not that old. He's probably in his early to mid-40s, but the asbestos has basically killed him. So even though it was still legally sold and you know marketed as a safe product, if you worked with it, you knew that this is pretty much taken its toll, like coal miners, like any other, or many other uh, kind of industrial, uh, you know, natural resources workers, maybe you get paid somewhat, well, I, these guys were not even getting paid well, they just didn't have a whole lot of choice. So that's kind of the backdrop is that, you know, you're, you're kind of born into a society where your very life is being exploited, and you don't really have a lot of options to get out, it's going to be hard, grueling labor, uh, almost inevitably for, for the majority of people, uh, the men in particular, and then the wives having to kind of just deal with it you know the men that they're married to are going to have to you know ex exercise a lot of patience a lot of long suffering get used to their men going away on jobs not being around much uh there's allusions to you know alcoholism and you know all kinds of you know kind of hard consequences that come from this deprived way of life and there's some class structure stuff as well because the bosses inevitably tend to be english speaking you know, Protestants uh, who are, you know, reaping the profits that these French-speaking Catholics are, you know, producing through the through the results of their, their hard labor. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, even though that class consciousness is there, it seems like Jutra's priorities are really just to show about how life goes for these people uh, in both the celebratory aspects as well as, you know, drawing attention to some of the you know, deprivations and hardships that they have to respond to. That father uh, that you mentioned, who's introduced at the beginning, he's quite really uh, thematically quite pivotal, I think, to the story. Sure because is, yeah. It's implied that he uh, kind of goes through this cycle of sort of uh, going in, the, he comes back and he works in the mines for a few months, then he gets kind of frustrated and, and angry about his 
sort of uh, the predicament that he's in and so he quits and then he goes and works for a few months uh, cutting down trees uh, in the lumber yards and things and then he gets frustrated and stuff with that and there's this implication that he just goes through this cycle if he keeps quitting and going back because that is in effect the only kind of uh, way that he can rebel against his circumstances is just by quitting and going mm. off to another job. But of course, he just gets caught in that endless cycle because he can't actually affect any real change. Yeah, even walking off the job is just a minor inconvenience to the boss. It's like, oh, there's an opening. Okay, we'll just drag some other stiff in here and do what you did. And yeah, you be you. But uh, there's not really an effective way to protest or strike back you know at the bosses well yes i mean there's quite an interesting scene where the where the boys uh one of the bosses comes through the town at one point and he very kind of callously throws some little trinkets some uh candy or something for the kids stockings in his yeah and this is on christmas eve right so yeah there's yeah. a scene and, right and before can, that where all the men are punching out getting their little you know their checks and but there's not yeah. really a bonus there's no pay raise it's very and meager He's not uh, like he's not engaging with the community or anything. He's just kind of there's a, like almost a kind of uh, a quality of contempt about it as he just goes through the town and just randomly throws these things in the street. Uh, and and everybody sort of uh, just cows in the background and a few of the kids rush out to grab their their stuff. But what's interesting is that Benoit uh, decides, uh, him and his friend decided to throw a snowball as this sort of act of defiance. Uh, but then afterwards, as he walks down the street, almost sort of expecting all the, the, the people in the town to uh, treat him as a conquering hero who stood up to the big boss, they instead all kind of keep cowering in their doorways and, you know, sh shut their windows and things. And so he has this expectation of like, hey, people, come on, I've, I've kind of stuck it to the man here, but uh, nobody else is, is participating in that or um, inspired by that. And it's only the reaction of, it, of the girl, uh, the young girl that you mentioned, Carmen, who gives him a very uh, subtle nod that uh, that's the only indication that he gets that there is a shared feeling of of this frustration. Yeah, there's a sublimely Quebec uh, Quebecois nationalist moment in the opening scene where he quits the job because his boss has been berating him about the truck in English yeah. for several minutes. And uh, they start walking away and he says to his friend in French, you know, I've had it with him. Like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And his friend says, what did he say to you? And he goes, I don't know. I don't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> it's all really... about the voice tone. Right, right, right. And the distinct separation. I mean, it's worth noting that yeah. the, the fellow who's throwing those trinkets to the people, he th doesn't throw them to the house. He throws them about three yards from the door, in the, <laughs> yeah. right in on the, the edge of the street, you know, it, so it, people have to come and get it. And into the mud, too. I think that that's really fascinating as well. I, I find found some of that, some of that social commentary uh, that's buried within the film to be... Uh, some of the most interesting and some of the most effective moments in the film. Uh, I found that really, really fascinating. I, I just found, found it paint this, this picture so beautifully of what life is like for them. Mm -hmm. 
Right. It's definitely showing, not telling. Uh, these are not well-manicured suburban lawns or neighborhood streets, you know, with sidewalks and picket fences. This is this is like a, a muddy two-track almost or a four-track, you know, at, at where those stockings that the, that the, you know, the boss puffing his pipe and kind of glancing back and forth, he's probably feeling as much in danger because he doesn't know who might be lurking around the next corner there as he's doing his uh, noblesse oblige thing you know throwing trinkets to the peasants uh, who are responsible for his fortune and getting his you know grim christmas eve duties out of the way but you're right these things are splattering in in the mud and, and the grime and just the expressions on the faces these you know the housewives kind of cowering behind the windows while they're taught runs out to the street to pick up whatever meager little uh you know trinkets are are stuffed within those stockings it is it's 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 really kind of sad and heartbreaking but again very very effectively explained and, and presented in visual terms uh that that don't require a whole lot of dialogue to get their point across and if you can imagine uh, in 1971 certainly for quebecois audiences that seems like that would have been incredibly uh, powerful and, and would have had a, an extra resonance that maybe uh, for a contemporary audience watching it, you know, many years later, uh, we, we might not have that same. We can obviously interpret that, but it, but it wouldn't have the same personal resonance uh, as people where it would be fresh in their memory and where the sort of... Uh, um, that uh, sort of separatist movement at the time mm-hmm. was was picking up uh it was quite prominent um so that those scenes would have had quite quite a lot of power uh to to audiences at that time yeah the tensions of one group of canadians pretty you know brutally exploiting another and not just individually but on a very broad systemic class basis i mean that's that's a pretty powerful message there and uh, you know, I, I you know, I don't know David and Richard. Neither of you come from Quebecois roots, so you know, as kind of more of the English-speaking Canadians, you know, how does that message resonate with you guys, or 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 Phil or Josh, for that matter? I mean, to me, it feels like you know, there's a tendency to sympathize with the underdog, and certainly Jutra identified a Quebecois were his people, and he spoke to that in some of those interviews about he's really trying to bring. Uh, Quebecois sentiment and and sensibility to his cinema to engage with the wider world and to say here's our reasons here's our cause for you know thinking and feeling the way we do um, was that seen as a divisive message in Canada or was there kind of a sense that yeah we really need to do better than this we need to come together as one nation it, it would have been pretty divisive at the time like he made this film during the um, the uh, what would be called the FLQ crisis or the October crisis. So um, there was actual uh, terrorism occurring in Quebec um, mm. in favor of Quebec separatism at this time. And the prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, declared essentially martial law in Quebec during this period. So so Jutra is really taking a side here that's not necessarily yes, the popular consensus side. He's 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 maybe being more provocative than we might think if uh, we identify this in a little bit of a depoliticized frame of reference that oh these are just kind of 
glimpses from the good old days. Yeah, <laughs> it's Quebec a very living there. issue at this time. Like, it's a very live issue at this point in time. Um, very divisive. <laughs> but, um, but the do, film still has a real sense of nostalgia about it too, doesn't oh, sure. it? Yeah. Like it does yeah. very much sort of celebrate community and, and this way of life that's maybe disappeared or is disappearing. So there is that kind of balance to it. It's not overtly political in that sense. Uh, and it's really all just done through this boy to show his own sort of awakening and his own mm-hmm. uh, rebellion uh, just within his own sort of community. But, but he's not a, a very radical person necessarily. Yeah. No, he's, he's just a kid. Go ahead. Jutra is like pretty much considered a soft nationalist in Quebec, like someone who favored strong national identity, but wasn't a separatist. So he's kind of making this in the context where there were other Quebec filmmakers who were making fairly radical Marxist statements in favor on film in favor of Quebec separation. And he's not doing that. Like he's moderate for the time period, but very decisively stating Quebec identity. And I think largely through his portrait of Quebec with a few digs, like as we've mentioned that at the role of English and the exploitation of Quebec citizens in the forties when this is set. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, he is a person who's working with the Canadian national government as part of the, you know, the film board and all of that. And, uh, and yeah, so you really, you're, it is interesting to hear some of the nuances, you know, you know, radical separation, Quebec is its own independent, uh, you know, sovereign nation by violence if necessary versus, well, let's just kind of carve out our own, carve out our own space within the, the larger Canadian project, but maintain our distinctives and, and demand to be respected on those terms. It's kind of the vibe I'm getting here. Um, maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about the role of religion because, uh, you know, there's definitely, again, it's, it's not heavy handed, but there are definitely allusions to the role of the Catholic church in its own somewhat complicity with the powers that be and with the economic order and uh, just that kind of traditional way of life that kept people bound to a certain way of doing things. Um, and any reactions, and I'll just kind of throw that open to whoever wants to jump in, uh, whether it's just kind of zooming in on the, the church spires or some of the religious symbolism. I mean, of course, it, it this all takes place right up to the lead up of Christmas and Christmas Eve. So there's, you know, the, the religious symbolism of, of the, the nativity and the... You know, the, both the, the commercial aspects as well as the religious and uh, ritualistic aspects of that. Uh, Who would like to pick up that theme? Well, something that just struck me is we're in the middle of the conversation. You know, the, there's there's a lot about the, um, not just the commercial aspects. I think that's that's a, you know, the, the majority of the action in the film takes place in the the shop. And I, I also think it's, the, this general store and and it's also you know the fact that Antoine is not only the the owner of the general store but he's also the one who retrieves the bodies and uh, sets up the funeral services and removes all of the fake flowers and all of the religious icons and even the rented suits for the corpses and there's this kind of um, this 
commodification of religion mm-hmm. throughout and and death too if i can just throw that in there i mean it's a it's a product to be sold yeah <laughs> you know? and and this 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 commodification of everything that uh i think jutra's uh exploring as part of uh benoit's growing awareness and growing disillusionment with uh the adult world and uh, there's that moment when they're setting up the nativity scene and uh and carmen is sprinkling the snow over everything and uh the aunt says you know we've we wait we've got to put the baby jesus there and uh she puts the baby jesus in place and carmen mentions that baby jesus doesn't look very good and she's like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's okay. He's small. Nobody will notice. And there, I think there's something. I think they said we had an accident. We dropped him on his head. Yeah, yeah. Like and, and, and I oh, think there's boy. something really telling about that as well, right? That, that this is the, the, the principal symbol of Christmas, this nativity scene, is, is the thing that is the most banged up and the most uh, uh, damaged in this in this little in this world that we're being invited into and so yeah i think that um that it's all part of jutra's uh exploration of the ways in which religion has been commodified and has been used to while it may not be as heavily marxist as the the radical separatist films were i think there is still this element of um distrust of religion and the way it keeps the workers pacified yeah and there's just all these dead ends i think that's one of the sort of the cultural takeaways is that he's presenting portraits of people who are really just boxed in by circumstances whether it's you know socioeconomics uh, kind of their own attitudes the limited options for making a living the kind of the stultified relationships and yet you know they try to make the best of it that they can uh but it's just it's just a hard go it's you know and i think that's that's kind of one of those overarching themes that everybody's kind of been dealt a pretty um pretty slim hand you know the, the prospects of it actually working out and turning out you know flush are are very very slim uh and it's jumping into speaking about those um the nativity scene references if if you notice uh, the final one of the final shots the way it's staged uh joe comes back to his home and his dead son is in the coffin and the family's mm-hmm. kind of standing around it kind of looks like a nativity scene so you have absolutely this, you know, yeah. this inverted yeah. flipping of the it's christmas morning and it's flipped on its head and it's the, the mixture of the death and the birth and and the sexual awakening of the film and everything kind of comes together <laughs> Well, let's, let's let's go ahead and get into that then, because yeah, we do have this this framing device of Joe, who's kind of introduced almost as the lead character at the beginning of the film, and then he, you know, he 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 makes appearances here and there, but um, in fact, uh, one of the reviewers, uh, Penelope Gilliat from the New Yorker magazine, when she first saw this film, kind of critiqued the film from the sense that she didn't think the structure served it well because we are given kind of a a false lead or she called him a red herring character I, I actually disagree with her quite a bit and i have a lot of respect for penelope Gilliatt because i feel he he puts the the bigger story in context even though we're going to spend most of our time with benoit his uncle his aunt carmen uh and farand uh i i like that structure and i like the fact that 
Jose and his wife, uh, who have kind of a, a, a <laughs> both a tough and a tender moment towards the beginning. Once he makes up his mind, he's going to go off to the lumber camp and he kind of breaks the news to his wife. It's like, hey, I'm out of here for the next few months. Uh, we'll see you around. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, there's just, there's some, again, some very good visual storytelling going on where she's looking at him, he looks at her, he recognizes the significance of what he's doing, and they have a little roll in the hay <laughs> before he heads out on his way. I mean, it's a it's a very earthy, but I thought a very affecting sentiment there. I, I don't know if we want to react to that particular portion before we get into the the final part of Joe's story. Well, we could jump back a little bit to talk about that sure. opening and, and the whole and the yeah. structure. It it is kind of a disorienting structure for the first time viewer. I mean, I remember when I saw it for the first time, trying to kind of make sense of who everybody was. And when I was watching it again recently, I was like, oh, Joe is the same person that keeps popping on. I put it all together. Yep. And, you know, mm-hmm. a first time viewer might, you know, be a little disoriented, you know. And yeah, who is this guy? To, um, and then where does this kid fit in and all of that? Yep. 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 Yeah. And I, w- I will say that I think that the structure is maybe part of the thing that that didn't quite work as well for me. I think that we're given these lovely, all of these really interesting moments, and I think I like all of the moments in the film. I think there's a lot that I really enjoy, but uh, the moments feel so disconnected from each other um, because of the way that it's structured that it it kept me from maybe, and and I think because it also has this, this heavy air of sentimentality over it all that it kept me from maybe engaging with with it as deeply as I wanted to so yeah I don't know I think that I think that I I'm one that maybe at least on the first viewing the the structure did kind of keep me at a distance and kept me from really fully engaging with it there is a there is a lot the film does not tell yeah us you know, why is his arm broken what happened to his parents why is Carmen living in Antoine's store? Apparently, what, you know. Hmm. It might mm. tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might also be the the that this kind of um, situation was probably quite common at the time as well. Like these sort of orphaned children and uh, adopted children, because as David mentioned, asbestos mining. Just mining in general is not uh, necessarily uh, the safest of occupations uh, at the best of times. And this would be just immediate post-war before a lot of these places were organized uh, labor-wise. So the safety uh, and the pay and and things like that, it was probably quite a high attrition rate. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's just basically, you know, how many deaths per month does the human resources department have to deal with? You know, there's no there's no breathing masks. There's no filters. Uh, they're just down and dirty right in the thick of it. And I'm sure that was just it, it was a calculation. You know, how many dead workers are we going to have to replace this quarter? You know, um, and so you've got young men like Benoit who are basically left with no prospects maybe dad's dead maybe mom's run off because she just can't handle it anymore and even with carmen you know she you know her father shows up on christmas eve to collect her wages for the quarter and and uh antoine to his credit decides he's gonna jip the father out of five 
five Canadian dollars so that Carmen gets a little something out of the deal, you know? And so it is, it's, it's very, you know, but it's, it's subtle, you know, you really can miss some of those things, but I think they are kind of showing why, uh, or, or how, how, you know, commerce was conducted in, a, you know, very commonly in a situation like this. And, and I think uh, it's quite important to put the film in its historical context because just at the uh, the end of the 40s, I think I sent uh, sent everyone the, a link to the wiki page, but in mm-hmm. 1949, there was quite a significant uh, labor dispute uh, mm-hmm. amongst uh, uh, these asbestos mining uh, companies uh, where finally a lot of the people started to uh, uh, organize themselves and start to protest, and it ended up in a quite a, a long and protracted strike, which was quite significant uh, and had quite a, a huge uh, political impact in the long term. Uh, and that's it's quite uh, pivotal to understand that 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 kind of stuff would just be bubbling under the surface at this point of when this story takes place, and so that characters like the father you know, would be symbolic of how a lot of people would have been feeling at the time about how these big American companies and the English-Canadian companies were, were basically uh, taking all of the wealth out of, out of the country. And, the, and, and the, the education system and everything was controlled by the church at the time. So a lot of these things were, were all quite sort of bubbling under the surface and just after this story would have taken place is when all of that change would have started to happen. Yeah, I remember seeing the name Johns Manville, um, one of the major corporations in the asbestos strike and, and, and one of the big, you know, union busters. Uh, Johns Manville was a name that I recall seeing advertised, you know, prominently sort of like a Monsanto or something like that uh, as a kid growing up. So they were definitely big players. And I I believe that Johns Manville is an an American company or if they are not American owned, they certainly had a big market presence. So yeah, this, this is not just, you know, Canadians leeching off of others. This is a kind of a multinational thing going on here. Um, I'd kind of like to go back to the point Josh made about sentimentality um because i feel like yeah there may be a sense of earnestness uh here that some viewers may not respond to as well i mean coming of age stories kind of almost categorically or by definition tend to be you know um the kind of movies that some people really appreciate and enjoy others not so much it's it's a genre that's been you know, kind of return to again and again and again. I mean, some of our greatest films, The 400 Blows, is definitely a coming-of-age story. Another film that came to mind as I was watching this that we reviewed earlier in this season, uh, Louis Malle's Murmur of the Heart, you know, kind of these you know, antics of rambunctious teenagers uh, who are, you know, kind of making a way for themselves, getting disillusioned with adulthood, realizing the system's kind of a ripoff and they can't really trust or believe the things that they've been taught from, uh, you know, when they were knee high to their mama. Uh, you know, like I say, some people really relate to that and, and enjoy kind of looking at that growing up experience through different cultures, different uh, ways of life, different times, etc. cetera. Uh, maybe others feel it's a little bit played out, but I also feel like, you know, maybe there is a, uh, I don't know if I want to, you know, be too, uh, stereotypical or, or caricatured, but Canada as a nation, as a culture, tends to be 
pretty forthright. I mean, they're, they're, they're you know, at least that's my, my experience living not too far from Canada is that they, you know, they're pretty plaintive, pretty straightforward. And, uh, and there is a bit of sentiment to that. I, I, my wife and I took a trip up to Nova Scotia this past fall back in October and, I enjoyed that. I mean, I enjoyed the politeness. I enjoyed the fact that cars would stop when they saw a pedestrian on the sidewalk just to wave them through. <laughs> you know, there's a, a niceness to Canada. And uh, and that sometimes comes across as very, um, you know, earnest and, and sincere in, in how those emotions are expressed. Uh, I don't know, Josh, if you want to respond to any of that or if anybody else sort of wants to pick up that whole sort of sentimental thing. And is that is a valid well, critique could- or what? Yeah. If I could just jump in to say that you've kind of <laughs> hit the nail on the head about the, <laughs> the the rambunctious part, because in a lot of yeah. the films you mentioned, like 400 Blows, and they're, they're very rambunctious, and the kids get into a lot of trouble, and there's a lot of uh, you know drama there, where this film is much more subtle. And, oh, yeah. and he's not that rambunctious, is he? I mean, the worst they do is kind of spy on a lady while she's trying on a dress, and things like that and he throws well he, you know, he's, he's he, right he's eating <laughs> a communion snowball. wafer like a ritz cracker he's chugging from the you know the the sanctified wine and uh, you know yeah he's you know he gets a little gropey with the uh, carmen there but it's it's a somewhat mutual thing i mean yeah he, you know he's uh, yeah he's he's not raising hell in kind of the you know uh the Francois Truffaut, you know, 400 blows sense, uh, Antoine Duenel and all of that. But it's, it's kind of a Canadian version of that, if you will. He, he does start off, uh, Benoit already as a pretty confident kind of, kind of tough nosed kid, you know, in, in terms of the, mm-hmm. the journey of a coming of age story and the growth he goes through, he, he kind of starts out already as kind of a, a confident boy. I noticed. Yeah, when he's kind of smirking, you know, when when he's watching his uncle and Frond uh, kind of break down the the funeral scene, he's got his little altar boy garment on there, and he's he's just kind of checking them out. You can see that little grin peeking out from behind the I don't know the missile Bible or whatever it is that he's holding in front of his face, and yeah, he he he's sort of catching on to the fact that. You know, they're certainly not being the most reverent or solemn as they, um, you know, hey, they ushered the guest out of the funeral proper into the reception, and now they've got to go on. And, and there's Ferran making his little wisecracks about who's paid for a mass and, and, you know, what's the story behind that? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, <laughs> say no more, say no more, you know, all of that. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of Benoit's introduction to us. He's he's a little bit of a, a wise guy, and, and he's learning as he goes. And he sees the the priest also taking sips out of the wine bottle. Yeah, and he uh, crosses himself. You know, that's a, and, another little dig there, right? Yeah, I think he's he's well prepared for the larger shocking disappointments that he experiences towards the end of the film. Yeah, but they're still pretty brutal. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. yeah, I think I think uh, the sentimentality for me is that that sense of kind of. Um, I think it goes along with Jutra's, you know, as as Richard was saying that this this kind of soft nationalism that Jutra has, where there's there's kind of a an almost kind of a there's a warm glow over so much of what happens at the store, um, mm-hmm. and and there are moments that are really lovely. I love the bit with the 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 um, keg of nails. I think that 
maybe one of my favorite <laughs> recurring jokes in the yeah. film, especially when it took a while to get it up those yeah. stairs, didn't <laughs> and it? especially yeah. the moment when the. Uh, the other when when Benoit's friend picks up the keg of nails and then pantomime stepping over the keg of nails even though he's carrying it you know I think there's some really funny funny things you know and, and some some lovely bits throughout uh, but it's that that kind of um, that soft glow and that that reverie for this bygone era uh, that you get when you get into the the store that. Um, that I think is, it, you know, can be really lovely, and and I think there's some interesting things there, and uh, and I do like that it starts to turn when we get to those crushing disappointments at the end, um, uh, that we get the, you know, he 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 does see that people are not, you know, from the very beginning that people are not always what they seem to be, uh, but at the end we really see uh, just how. Uh, how broken the adult world is. I think, you know, some of the most successful coming of age stories for me are the ones where they're faced with that disappointment, but then they still have to find a way to navigate the adult world or they have to navigate the world after that disappointment. And they have to kind of figure out how to integrate that new knowledge. And uh, because this ends so abruptly, uh, in some ways, uh, with that that beautiful image, which I think is really gorgeous, I think that that ending there leaves leaves with this the sense of that Jutra feels that the the that Benoit's innocent Benoit would have been better off kind of uh, not having uh, learned those truths that the the innocence. Uh, is something to have been cherished and prized. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's kind of the the sense that I got at the end of the film. It could have been protected a little bit longer from some of those cold, hard realities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That and so it, and so it and and just by ending it like that, we don't. I don't get the sense that he's actually come of age, but that he's had um, he's had innocence shattered, and that that's where it ends. I, th- I think there's some um, some understood context that I'll add is not going to be understood by anybody nowadays, right? And, and I think the film is made for an audience of its time and a Quebec audience of its time, partly because I don't I don't think there was any expectation that we'd be watching this film hmm. like this many years later. Hmm. And I think it's worth noting that. The period in which this is set is sort of colloquially referred to as the great darkness Mm -hmm. because it's the, you know, five term period where the Duplessis, the conservative premier of Quebec was in charge. And and there was a very, there was an emphasis on rural and Catholic values and anti-communism, anti-labor union. So I, I think there's a sense in this film where, the viewer is supposed to understand that Benoit's realization that his warm world is a little bit corrupt is a reflection of the fact that this era was corrupt. Yeah. Right. And that and this is coming off a 10 year period where that, that sort of period of Quebec was being radically reversed in, you know, in the, in the 1960s. So I think, 
I mean, it's not a defense of the film for the modern viewer, but it's a it's a sense of saying I think the Jutra ex- under thought the viewer was taking more to the film than they are than we are. Mm. Yeah, he's speaking to a an audience that has lived through most of this, maybe except for the very youngest viewers. But he's not really necessarily looking to communicate with them. Maybe the the, the teens, the adolescents. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, if you sort of step back, this is a society with no social safety net whatsoever, as far as what you know the government provides or any other. Even even the church seems to be more of a distant you know, force telling you what you should not do rather than actually providing for basic needs. You know, your your son dies, you've got to call a guy with a, you know, horse-drawn sled to, to pick him up. And, and, I mean, it's everybody's just kind of scrapping and slugging it out for themselves. And, and even though there may be some community formed within, you know, the this system, it's, you know, it's scraps. You know, there's, there's, there's no concession... Uh, and again, I, it goes back to Duplessis, uh, you know, hatred of anything that's socialistic or, or um, you know, government acting on behalf of the people or other kinds of organized forces. No labor unions, no government benefits. Uh, you you just get your basic wage, you pay your taxes, and you're on your own, buddy. Make the best of it. That's really mm-hmm. kind of the terms of life. And not quite telling. Uh at the end when the when the uh, casket falls off the back of the sleigh and Benoit's yeah. trying desperately to try and get it and he can't be and he goes to his uncle for help and I think that's meant to be quite symbolic in the fact that he's saying you know come and help me come get out of your sort of stupor and come and help me lift this load you know yeah. uh, and, uh, and and the, and the uncle can't do it he, he kind of breaks down and admits I'm unhappy, but I just don't know what to do. I'm, I'm, I'm not able to, uh, I'm not empowered to do anything about this. And I think that right. scene is meant to be quite symbolic of, of the, these underlying themes that we're talking about. Right, right. It's it's all of his grievances all kind of come spilling out. My wife never gave me children. I don't like handling corpses. I wish I had a hotel in the States. I mean, it's just basically like, um, we just got to get this thing on the sled, dude. Can you help me out here? Let me tell you the story of my life. Look you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm stuck looking after you rotten kids. It's interesting that Benoit shows no sympathy whatsoever for his uncle. He calls him a drunkard and even sort of slaps him back at one point and yeah well so, Benoit's landed at that stage of life when a you know, 15 year old knows better than all these messed up adults you know <laughs> well what's really going on you know so it's a it is a yeah that is a coming of age moment uh yeah for for better or for worse and he, he looked up to him he wanted to go along yeah he wanted to go along he looked up to him and this has been a not very pleasant experience up to that point and Right, right. He's seeing his his uncle getting hammered there. Just you know, he empties one bottle. Well, let's break out the next one. You know, it's like yeah. uh, this and is beyond dinner. just staying warm. You know, uh, yeah, right, right. The, the the way that he eats the dinner and the way that that's presented is it just shows the uh, rather than having sensitivity about this mother who's just lost her child, he's uh, more interested in the pork dinner and the gluttony of of sort of. Um, eating this food and drink and he doesn't show any real sensitivity to the situation. 
So Benoit yeah. sits there kind of going, oh, man, uh, you know, it's kind of this combination of embarrassment and, uh, you know, uh, disgust. Well, and, and yeah, even even a, a form of horror because he now has to help, you know, transport this corpse and he looks at that boy and it's like, that could be my brother. In fact, you know, Julie, my wife, sat down and was watching the tail end of it with me and she's like, what's wrong with that kid in the bed? And I was like, well, he's dead. <laughs> and he said, oh, that, is that his brother? It's like, well, you know, they could be, but no, he's just there to help with the errand of retrieving the corpse and getting it back into town. But you know that's that's part of Benoit's awakening as well. It's like uh, it could have just swapped places just as easily, and who knows how long my life is going to last, and if I'm going to be you know hauled around on a slab you know, in the not too distant future. See, you know the these these kind of hard facts of life, even even the uh, the elements, you know. Um, you know, the, the, this is this is pretty technologically underdeveloped. You know, they're they're taking horse-drawn sleds down almost trackless wilderness to get from you know the town back to this farm outpost here. Uh, he cannot trace his steps once they're you know kind of making the return trip. It's snowy. It's dark. He's not exactly sure where he's been. Uh, he has to almost rely on the horse for guidance because the horse has made this trip and kind of knows the way back. So, you know, you're even dealing with sort of low tech and, and kind of cold, hard winter and just some of those <laughs> other facts of life that, uh, you know, are, are pretty insurmountable obstacles in many respects. So yeah, are there other aspects of this film? I I, I do want to say I, I really enjoyed this the soundtrack. You know, the music is by um, let's see here, Jean Cousineau. I don't know if this person had a uh, a long career or or other distinguished accomplishments, but I really I actually quite enjoyed the the soundtrack. It felt very authentic, very period. It has a variety of different musical styles, but they all felt kind of really genuine and emblematic I'll, I'll obviously use a couple selections from the uh, intro and outro but um, that was another aspect of the production design that really helped me settle in and just really enjoy you know perhaps uh, enjoy is kind of a an unusual word but I, I did a, I enjoyed sort of stepping into this world uh, even you know observing and witnessing many of its blemishes and and, and hardships but uh, I think the you know the the soundtrack was a was a very nice contribution to that overall experience yeah i like the music very much too and i was watching one of the special features and i think if i understood correctly he said he the composer said that he he wrote the opening theme but i think most of the rest of the music was uh existing folk music that he arranged mm -hmm. for the film mm -hmm. well, it was well selected and well done and probably we should give a shout out to the cinematographer uh, as well yeah um, uh, who, who was a director, I think, in his own right, and he was um, brought in on this project. And I think he kind of forms the trio of the, of the three uh, with Chutra and the, the writer uh, and the chap who did the cinematography. I think and it's Michel Brault, I would pronounce the, the last names. name, B-R-A-U-L-T. <laughs> and he actually, you know, he, he did Outlive yeah. Jutra, and he is interviewed on that 
kind of longer documentary. Uh, very sadly that he and, and Jutrich had a significant falling out. Uh, maybe they were just one of the, you know, the story of two really strong personalities that did some great work together and then kind of came to a, a crossroads where they disagreed on something and parted the ways. Bro himself said that the falling out really was on Jutra. He says, um, Claude would have to explain, but he's no longer here to do that. Um, so yeah, it, it does feel like one of those pairings that came together. Again, I, you know, Jutra, you know, give him a lot of props as the director, as maybe the, the visionary that, that pulled all of this together after doing some pretty interesting looking stuff in the early sixties. There is a link on the show notes from the national film board with, that has, uh, the ability to, to, to watch for free this film, uh, Mon Oncle Antoine, as well as some of his earlier works as well. And so there is, you know, there is access. The National Film Board continues to make this material available uh, without any registration, login, or anything like that. It's, it's just there. And that's a, that's a nice feature. I should point out that if anyone is listening to this is Canadian. Yeah, the rights are still controlled channel. by the film board and the channel for whatever reason has not been able to obtain them or hasn't negotiated them or hasn't met the price or whatever. Yeah. I think NFB mm-hmm. probably pur- purposefully retained them. There's a, there's a few, there's a few cases where uh, like the Canadian streaming rights and the American. Yeah. You watch this on yeah. iTunes, right, Richard? I think I saw on your Facebook feed. Yeah. yeah. So um, what do yes, you, I, did. I, I think there might even be a question of what, whether or not the film board or the iTunes version is the iTunes version, the criterion version. Um, I'm not absolutely certain it is. It it certainly sounds like it's better quality than the NFB version, right? Because uh, David was talking about bad uh, subtitles in the NFB version. I think that was I Phil, actually. Yeah. Or, or, or were you too, David? Yeah. Oh, was it Phil? No, it, it oh, was okay. me because I watched it via the NFB uh, website because here in the UK, I, I've never purchased the Criterion DVD <laughs> because I've always yeah, kind of sure. held out hope that there was going to be a Blu-ray at some point. So I've always, it's one of those. Yeah, this DVD came out, I think, right before Criterion started putting the Blu-rays yeah. out. So it's kind of like if you didn't get it. So it's right, one of those films I would buy straight away, but I was always kind of holding out hope that there was going to be a Blu-ray. So I watched it on the NFB uh, website, but uh, I want to stress that the quality is is definitely good. Like it's a high definition transfer, and it is very watchable. Uh, the only thing that w- about the subtitles is that they, rather than electronically generated ones that we would usually get uh, on a home video release, they're they're actually it looks like it was transferred from oh, an actual okay. film print mm. or an interpositive where, so the, the subtitles are actually burned into the image. Uh, and they, they, for some reason, uh, they don't have any capital letters, all the writings, mm. even the beginning of sentences is lowercase. So that was just something I pointed out, but, but I would definitely recommend people go to the NFB uh, website and check out some of the stuff uh, it's all free. It doesn't cost anything, and uh, and aside from Claude Jutra's stuff, there's a just an absolute wealth of wonderful short films and documentaries and uh, animation and all sorts of wonderful stuff on there that's absolutely free to watch. Uh, so definitely go and check that out. 
So, you know, I think of Boards of Canada. I think about that kind of trippy, ambient electronica <laughs> thing that was happening. <laughs> they might still be around. I don't know. Every so often they might release a new album. But uh, can you just tell me, what is a little bit about the Boards of Canada? I mean, the National Film Board is one of those Boards of Canada. What other boards are there? or How does that whole system work? Uh, and is it still what it used to be, or has it changed uh, over the years? The, the Film Board in particular, I'm saying, yeah. Uh, well, well, I could certainly talk about it historically. Yeah. Uh, more recently, Richard might have to pick that up because uh, uh, because I don't live in Canada anymore and I haven't for uh, two decades now. I, I couldn't really comment on, on what the state of the situation is. But certainly, um, historically, obviously because Canada, although it's quite a large uh, land mass, uh, but but population wise, it's it just doesn't. Have, it's not. It was never able to support uh, a kind of a local film industry, um, and even nowadays it doesn't really because a lot of the productions that they do now are co-productions or financed by American companies and things like that. There are a couple of bigger like Alliance and stuff, uh, bigger Canadian distributors nowadays. But back in the time, Jutra's time, uh, certainly Canada just did not have much of a, of a film industry. It was, uh, and most of the stuff was publicly funded. I think Richard mentioned even David Cronenberg's uh, early mm-hmm. films were financed by grants. Basically, he applied for grants and got enough money to scrape together to make a film. Uh, so the National Film Board was the only real outlet that... Canadian filmmakers would have had, or if you wanted to learn the craft uh, and get involved in filmmaking, you would go to the National Film Board, you would pitch your idea, they would uh, have some sort of a body like a a council or something, uh, like an executive council that would sit down and evaluate these submissions and then they would decide based on the amount of funding that they had. And this was all public money, this is all taxpayer funded. Uh, this money would then be handed out to various people who they decided that their projects were worthwhile. So a lot of it was sort of shorter subjects, uh, uh, but they did do a few sort of feature-length documentaries and things like that. And Richard was quite right in pointing out that because it was publicly funded, the remit for the National Film Board was that everything had to be have some sort of merit culturally, whether that be artistic merit or sociological merit of some kind in order to justify spending public money on these projects. Mm. So that was the kind of environment that you can imagine. It probably wouldn't have been much different from sort of the the type of, um, uh, and don't interpret this the wrong way, but this probably would have been quite similar to the sort of situation that they would have had in the Soviet Union at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. And that filmmakers like Tarkovsky would have to go and submit a proposal for an idea. And then a, a bunch of uh, suits would sit around and evaluate these projects and, uh, and then decide, okay, yes, this, this will work. And maybe sometimes they might kick things back and say, well, we like this idea, but we want a little bit more of this or we want a little bit more of that. Yeah. So that would be the, the sort of the, the, the type of environment that Claude Jutra would have been working in. So in order to get this project funded, uh, and that probably ties in quite a bit about some, a lot of the, the uh, 
contextual sort of the, the, the subtext of the piece and things that we've been talking about, all that would have been very important to the film board in order to get this project uh, funded and uh, to be been able to put forward. And it would also be worth no it'd be worth noting too that the kind of budget here, I mean this is a very high quality film. It's very beautifully uh, made and well made, uh, very professionally made. But the budget would not have been very big by sort of a Hollywood production standard. It would have been very, very low budget and nobody would be getting rich off of this, <laughs> off of making this film. Uh, so, and and the, the people, the principals that were involved, the creative principals were already well established at the National Film Board. They had a lot of experience making films, mm -hmm. shooting films, editing films. So that, that is why they were able to um, take on a project of this scale. Right. So they're almost like drawing salary because they're just skilled technicians rather than they've got a stake in the, you know, the returns or the gross of the film, or maybe more of the Hollywood model. So very, very interesting. But yeah, this is idea that you've got to sort of submit a proposal that has some kind of socially redeeming value. I do kind of wonder if that maybe led Jutra to you know, model this film after something like a 400 blows where he's, because you know, he's a guy who came of age uh, during the Nouvelle Vague. And, and I think uh, this film is regarded as sort of his effort to kickstart a Quebecois Nouvelle Vague uh, in terms of, uh, you know, more, you know, personal idiosyncratic filmmaking, uh, filmmaking with a narrative thrust rather than you know, the documentaries, I also think of like the Alan King Eclipse series set where he did a, an incredible job of creating very uh, compelling what he called actuality dramas, which were stories based, uh, you know, filmed from real life. Uh, you know, by by uh, contrast, uh, Mononcle Antoine is in some ways almost like a Canadian neorealist film. I'm sure a lot of the actors were, were were amateurs or just local extras who were happy to get up on screen and just be themselves. And again, to jump back to what you were saying about the, the cinematographer, I think this, that he's mm -hmm. a big part of that. He sort of grounds the film in, in the sort of look of realism, you know, a little bit more. Um, mm hmm maybe with a little sentimentality too, you know, as, as opposed to Jutra, who I think prior to this came from a little more of a, uh, experimental tradition, you know, in, in the films he was doing yeah. before. Yeah. The look of the film reminds me a lot of a film we talked about a couple of months ago when we had, did the show about Get Carter, because mm -hmm. I think it has that same almost kind of documentary sort of, you know, it's a very beautiful images and very, you know, nice, uh, sort of compositions and things, but also very much kind of uh, that documentary feel to it, that real, real sort of uh, image rather than a lot of fancy lighting and things like that. Yeah, you don't get the sense that these are sets. You know, these he's just going into buildings that happen to be in this town that they chose for the location, and that's where they made the movie. So I should point out that yeah. the uh, sort of the role of the National Film Board mm -hmm. as the... Um, sort of adjudicating board for making government-funded films sort of ended in the late 70s, mm -hmm. mid to late 70s. They took on, um, and it was largely because it was considered a semi-failure only because whenever anybody tried to make a film that actually sort of made money, <laughs> mm -hmm. 
it would there would be get a lot of blowback because the government was spending money on making films that were considered more junky. Yeah, like so they okay like like Cronenberg, right? And uh, so they introduced a scheme in the late seventies to give people massive tax credits for investing in Canadian film. Okay. Essentially, if you invested in Canadian film, any money you invested was a hundred percent tax deductible. Oh boy. Until you until you made the money back. Okay. And Which then led you... to an explode. Then you had to pay tax on it as you made it back. Sure. Which led to an explosion of Canadian film production in the early eighties, but it also led to an explosion of very bad quality Canadian films, many of which were never intended to be released at all because people realized they only need to make the film. Okay, so yeah. almost like as a, a tax shelter, right? A lot of them didn't even right. get distributed. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that ended that role of the NFP, who's since become more of a documentary and animation short production mm-hmm. board again. But that that system had its own faults in that you got a like a influx of Canadian films, many of which were absolute garbage <laughs> okay. by people by people who never intended the film to be released in some cases yeah because right they got a tax shelter and they didn't care what happened to it after that yeah you got to see a lot of those i remember in the very early 80s when pay tv came to canada and that was sort of my sort of um, first exposure to a lot of uh, you know a wider cinema and things like that i was a teenager but those films that Richard mentions, those kind of tax shelter year productions from the sort of late 70s, early 80s, a lot of those ended up as fodder on those Canadian stations mm. because they had Canadian content uh, rules that they had to show a certain percentage. So a lot of these really awful tax shelter things got uh, a lot of them starring Donald Sutherland actually because he was <laughs> yeah. Canadian so they brought him up as a Canadian star and he drew his check uh, and uh, yeah, he'd get paid right oh so sure why not oh yeah he pr- he was probably the only one who who got rich off of that <laughs> because he would get like huge sums of money to come and be the star yeah. of these Canadian productions and then uh, most of the films were just so awful that nobody ever saw them. <laughs> wow, fascinating. Well, that's one of those laws of yeah. unintended consequences there. Uh, well, speaking yeah. of unintended consequences, maybe, I mean, and we can get back to some of the, the, the movie discussion in particular about Mon Oncle Antoine, but uh, Claude Jutra, we've already kind of uh, alluded to the fact that uh, he was a man of, of great prominence, prestige, uh, renown within the Canadian film industry. Again, a number of awards were named after him. Uh, but uh, just a, a few years ago, 2016, there was uh, allegations raised about inappropriate sexual contact that he had with underage boys. And uh, a couple, at least a couple of them, the, the young men themselves, of course now older, uh, and what, 40 years almost, or 30 years, I'm sorry, after Jutra passed away, he uh, had early onset Alzheimer's, uh, disappeared in late 1986. His body was found uh, the spring or late winter of 1987. Uh, he had walked off a bridge, uh, killed himself, and this again, this is all documented. That part is documented pretty extensively in that uh, Jutra, the Untold Story, uh, where he had some very sad, very tragic struggles with memory, 
uh, recognized his faculties were escaping him and took his life, uh, I think in his early 50s. So it was a really, really sad story and a, a really terrible outcome for a man who'd led a pretty great life and, and done some really important work. But there's this this chapter that's come out in the years since he's left this world, and uh, it's definitely created a lot of blowback, a lot of controversy, and it sounds like a very sad situation for everybody involved. But Jutra himself has somewhat fallen from grace just because uh, if these allegations are true, they're very indefensible. Uh, but it is a it's a it's a painful situation, I'm sure, for people who knew and admired his work. That might be one reason that Criterion has not uh, chosen to upgrade this to a Blu-ray release. I don't know. I mean, they've they've put out Blu-rays by Roman Polanski and and maybe others with some of their own scandals in the background of their personal story. Um, I don't know that we need to dwell heavily on that, but it is a reality that if you do a search for Claude Jutra and find out more about this guy that you might not have heard about, that's going to be one of the top returns in the search results. So who'd like to maybe follow up those comments or just talk a little bit about this aspect? Um, because I think, I think Josh, maybe you were saying there's some echoes or some shadows uh, even within this film, Mon Oncle Antoine, that maybe connect to uh, this more recent revelation. Yeah, I, I think for me it, it hung as a specter over the film. Um, I think in, in researching his other work as well, uh, he is a filmmaker who documented... Uh, the lives of children and teenagers and uh, and so he was someone who was uh, very interested in uh, that and I think you know when we talk about the uh, uh, you know I really appreciated Richard what you had to say about the 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 time period in spe specifically that uh, Mon Oncle Antoine was set in and and the the darkness and and that the those those connotations are there but i also think that this this film also um you know i, I do think that someone uh, you know and, and it's possible that that this reading or is that my reading is influenced by the knowledge of of uh, jutra uh, of jutra's uh, the scandal and everything but there is this romanticization of innocence in in this, uh, and I think that 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 um, that just kind of clouds a little bit of that for me. Uh, and I think that it uh, that part of that sentimentality, a lot of that just affects it for me. And I feel like it, it's hard to disentangle some of those uh, those things. Um, and I, th I think that the fact that you know the the main actor uh, was a hitchhiker, that uh, he a fifteen year old hitchhiker that he picked up and then cast. There there are just a lot of there's just a lot of murkiness in uh, in the background that um, for me puts a little bit of a cloud over the film. That uh, it will take a few more viewings I think for me to be able to to see it without some of that. Yeah, it's it's hard stuff just to wave away and say, oh, it was a different time or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and reading some of the the, you know, 
I you know reading the fact that the the author of the book who who uh, put these who who revealed these these allegations that he himself was like oh I didn't think it was going to be a big deal that I revealed this this was just a different time that that there was such a permissiveness to this type of behavior in the industry and uh, just in I mean it's 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 a permissiveness in Western culture and even some of the writing about uh, this and the people who are trying to defend Jutra uh, talking about the the well we need to 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 think about the the relationships between men and boys as being somehow we need we need to rethink that and think about how you know what what about boys who really do love older men and you know not thinking about the predatory nature of that and and I do think that that there's a fuzziness to uh consent in this film uh, especially when we look at the um the roughhousing between Carmen and Benoit, because that sequence, uh, there is this, this sequence, you know, when, when he does grope her, where she says no, and you sense, you know, as she turns her face away from him, and there's a tear streaming down her face, she doesn't actually want him to touch her, but you also get the sense that the film is is wrestling with that. Does you know? Does she want uh, this kind of flirtation or not? And uh, so it, it's just a it's a film that that I found uh, troubling at times. And um, I, and I'm going to probably continue to wrestle with some of that. And I think that that is not a bad thing. Um, but I think it's it's just. It's something that I think uh, people who view the film need to be aware of, that, that there are some, uh, that I do think that his, his, his life does influence uh, the way that those, those relationships interact on screen. Yeah, well, well said. Anybody else have a response or thoughts on this topic? Well, I think it's certainly a difficult one to wrestle with. I think Josh is absolutely correct. And it, it puts a lot of his early films in a different light as well, because I, I've i spent the last couple of days looking at some of the stuff on the NFB website. And uh, he's got a lot of, there. there is a lot of focus on children in his films. Uh, and so when you have this knowledge in the background, uh, it does color that a little bit. You you can't help but do that. Um, At the same time, I I guess when you when you watch a film like uh, Monocola Tuan, it it has uh, there's nothing overtly. I mean, you can certainly take that knowledge and then you can start to read a lot of that into the film. But at the same time, I think the film stands on its own and has enough qualities uh, about it that we shouldn't um, we shouldn't necessarily uh, dismiss it yeah. just because of those things if you see what I mean yeah. I mean there's lots of if you could look at lots of great works of art that uh, um, you know where the people who were who made them or were involved in them weren't necessarily that you know they had flaws of one kind or another uh, and obviously you know, um, this one's quite quite a serious allegation, quite disturbing. Um, 
But at the same time, I think uh, at, at some point you don't want to just completely start censoring or dismissing things because of that. You 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 have to to to, to take things on their own. Yeah. Um, well, it, and it's a, it's a very you know hot topic and a very vigorous debate going on these days and other circles about artistry and the personal lives of creators and, and other person you know, personalities. You know people of, of some influence in different walks of life. Um, so yeah, I, we're not going to resolve all those issues right here. And I honestly have not looked enough into the detail or the substance of these allegations to know if they happened uh, before, during, or after the making of this film. Jutra himself in some of those documentaries talks about uh, a darkness within that he's had to wrestle with. And as we've already said, you know, he, he had some very significant cognitive impairments at the later stages of his life as the Alzheimer, uh, you know, kind of took over. And, and so there's maybe some diminished capacity. I mean, it's, you know, I'm certainly not going to make excuses or justify or anything like that, but you know, he led a complicated life, uh, at the same time, he was, a a creator of, of some, you know, significant talent. And, uh, he, he provided material and messages that has spoken pretty powerfully to a lot of people over the years. Um, so I'm not sure this is a wrap-up phase exactly, but maybe we're pretty close to that. Um, are there any other aspects to the film that people want to, you know, touch upon or, or comments that maybe you've jotted down or wanted to put out there before we, uh, you know, draw the conclusion to this episode? I, I, I was trying to work out the, the, the timeline of the film a little bit. I know it seems to take place on the chiefly on the 23rd, 24th, and 25th. But when you follow Joe's character through the film, I mean, are we supposed to take it that sort of what he's going through is happening contemporaneously on the 23rd, 24th, and 5th? Because here's the guy who is well, working yeah. a job, decides to leave his job, decides to leave his family for six months, just a couple of days before Christmas. Why can't he uh, celebrate Christmas with his family and then go to a I don't know. Maybe it's a small detail. Or, or are they playing with time a little bit and, and some of these things maybe happen earlier? I think the opening segment of the film takes place earlier and then it kind of jumps ahead a few months to the to the Christmas uh, time period. Yeah, probably about six months before. Yeah, oh, that's wow. how I read it as well. I do wonder, are we supposed to interpret that Joe got off the train, headed home, and happened to run across his son's body. So I I, I would so. think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no other way to account for the casket winding back up at his house. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, that's that's just the conclusion you're supposed to draw. Nobody else brought it. He he must have you know come up the path from the train station that uh, same one that Benoit and Antoine took on their way back. And, uh, you know, you find a, a casket or a large wooden crate along the way, you're going to look inside. I mean, good grief, what a stunning moment of, of despair that would have been, you know. But in any case, it's, yeah, and, and, and again, is that is that a manipulation for effect? Is that kind of one of these elements where if you really stand back and do a my, maybe kind of a colder analysis of the film, it's like, well, that's quite a, deus ex machina right there uh, a bit of a manipulation of emotion i mean I, I think it's it succeeds it's effective and you know i don't think it's a huge leap of imagination or or un, unbelievable coincidence that this would have happened but that that seems to be how you account for it 
Now, was he was Joe coming home then because he was called about his son, and that's why he was coming home? No, he was or coming home for Christmas. No, he he was just looking at the calendars, like, "Hey, okay. it's Christmas. I miss my family. I've left them behind," and and kind of like as we already talked about, he's just kind of going through that back and forth, like, you know, the 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 lumber campaign, all it's cracked up to be. I'm going to step out of this one as well. I'm going to go at least spend the the holidays with my children because I don't think there was any phone contact. Uh, right. the, you know the yeah. And I get the sense that Joe has done this multiple times with <laughs> yeah. both jobs, that he has walked off the mining job several times, that he has walked off the logging job several times, that this is a, a pattern that he has done that, again, it's his only way to rebel against a system that is stacked against him. Yeah, there's a line of dialogue that says... Uh... If you walk off this mining, this log, the lumber job again, they may not take you back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that at the beginning when he quits the the job at the mine as well. They say, "Oh, this time this will be it. You won't get your job back." But you also get the feeling that that's probably not true either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that he will be able to come back and and get the job again, and he'll just continue to go through that cycle. Yeah. At one point, he says, "I won't spend my life kissing their ass." And then one yeah. of his coworkers at the logging camp kind of questioned him about leaving the job again, which apparently yeah. he's done so much. He's are you crazy? His response is, what can I do? It's just how I am, is Joe's response. Yeah. And I think this largely yeah. is a film about people who are the way they are. This is a sort of depiction of that community. Yeah. yeah, but they don't always back up their tough talk. He probably will end up kissing ass to some yeah. degree because he's going to have to go crawling back because those are the two jobs that a, a big strapping guy like him can do you know he's not going to do a desk job he's not doesn't have the means to start his own business either chop wood or dig asbestos <laughs> and uh that's his lot that really is it you know and they're both incredibly dangerous too oh absolutely you know, the logging right. job is no less dangerous than the asbestos job mm -hmm. uh yeah, and as he gets older, the, the physical wear and tear of doing those types of jobs, too, will catch up with him. Right. Uh, maybe they already are, uh, because you see at the end when he's cutting the logs, he does seem to be physically struggling a little bit. So there's that, that implication that as he's getting older, he's going to struggle more to be able to do these jobs at all. Yeah, and, and just the, the odds keep going up that there'll be some kind of a slip-up that will cost him his life or a serious injury or permanent disability, whatever the case may be. It's just you're, you're, you're you know, running against time, and, and uh, you just keep breaking down while the job doesn't get any easier or, or more forgiving if you mess up. I'm amused at the notion that there might be a desk job available to him. Like, like Joe's going to become a telemarketer or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 a tough go of it, no doubt. All right, any any other observations? I mean, I I recommend this film. I I definitely feel it's worth a spin on the channel if you've got access to it. Um, uh, you know, it is it, it is it is meaningful to me that that this is a significant canadian film canada is a society that i have a lot of appreciation for i've i've been up that way a few times over uh the course of my life and i've always enjoyed it in fact i absolutely would have been back there this summer if uh, covid hadn't knocked out our travel plans uh we were looking at going to prince edward island and kind of checking out and of Green Gables territory, <laughs> so uh, uh and and i i i think there's a lot to be said about uh 
the, the Canadian way of life, the ethos, the experiences I've had up there, and and uh, and what they represent as a culture uh, here in North America. Um, so I, I I do think this is a movie worth you know pondering, living with uh, all of the complications of Claude Jutra's personal life aside. Uh, this is a movie that that spoke to me, and I'm really glad that we've had this experience. I really appreciated all you guys' insights and perspectives on this film. Uh, some maybe a little more critical than others, but I think it's been a great conversation. Yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out too that despite we, we obviously had quite a lot of discussion about the sort of political subtext and all that, but the thing is, this is still quite an accessible film and it's quite entertaining oh yeah, yeah josh pointed out there's a lot of very funny moments and really nice moments uh and so it is i think it deserves its uh, status as a as a great film a great canadian film certainly but also even to take that aside i think the just the story about the community and the the coming of age element and the different relations between the people uh, I think it is accessible to a wider audience, and I think it deserves its its uh, reputation as being a as a great film. So do I. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's 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 wonderful, and I would encourage anybody to learn as much as they can about the the specifics of the Quebec history and all that stuff that that informs and goes behind this. But it's also at the same time a very universal. You know, there's a lot of universal themes that, that all of us can relate to as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Well, let's go ahead and just kind of do maybe little wrap-ups. Um, Josh, you're a podcaster. What do you yeah. got in the pipeline uh, for us as we just talk about projects, what's going on, where people can find you, all of that stuff? Yeah, I'm uh, in the middle of uh, editing my July episodes for Criterion Channel Surfing. Uh, Doug McCambridge and I talk about the July new releases and expiring titles and talk a little bit about some underrepresented uh, uh, films from underrepresented countries on the Criterion channel. So uh, I should have some of that stuff ready to go in the next few days. So yeah, that'll be great. Cool. Well, we'll you know, get our dueling editing on and see who gets up on the Criterion Cast <laughs> homepage first. But yeah, I'm always looking forward to fresh new stuff. I know you did kind of a, a mega episode uh, yes. earlier this month, kind of a you know, kind of a catch up there. How's the pace of life going for you? You, you get a little more breathing room these days. A, a little more breathing room. I'm not. Things aren't quite as stretched. Uh, when I got back from vacation at the end of. Uh, May beginning of June, I started working uh, eighty-hour weeks, and oh. uh, so uh, life just didn't quite let up. So uh, this is uh, my pace is, has improved, and uh, I think last month I watched a total of like ten films, which is really <laughs> low for me. So oh, I, yeah. I've already, you know, this is this is great. I'm 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 popping them in left and right now this is this is good so uh it was it was nice to be able to watch something that and uh yesterday that uh has been on my list to watch and catch up with and uh uh be able to do some research on and prepare for uh this conversation so this was uh yeah. this was really lovely and uh i'm actually really excited to revisit this again uh after some yeah. time and after some time to ponder it's one that 
is not my favorite film, but I always I always like revisiting films that aren't my favorite films because I always find that there's more to them uh, on second and third rewatches and more more to the uh, the experience when I revisit them. Yeah, I think I think this is one that will grow, and hopefully, some of our conversation will have planted some seeds for what to look for and the revisit. Uh, so, to my more you know non podcasting host partners here, uh, Richard, what you got going on these days? Any little announcements or blurbs you want to throw out our way? Uh, no, I'm I'm <laughs> hanging out. Sure, hanging out. yeah, I'm on I'm on Facebook and other places. I like I like Josh's home. Yeah. podcast quite a bit oh yeah definitely oh, oh you, you got always got a good feed going there uh david how about you how, what's up on your end well you know i i'm still working from home yeah. and and you know looking after the kids we're still even though things are relaxed uh relaxing a bit more here we're still kind of in the middle of the covid shuffle here oh, yeah. so uh and i've got some building work going on in my house so this next couple of weeks we're just going to be packing boxes and oh um and seeing a lot of dust yeah i didn't (laughs) Uh, as our sorry go ahead i I didn't hear any hammers or saws going while we were recording so you must have taken a little break well no it's nighttime (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of evening here now so thankfully uh, there's no building works at the minute but um yeah and you know i'm just uh um yeah, and uh, enjoying a lot of the Criterion Cast uh, podcasts. It's nice uh, to hear people talking about uh, good films and stuff. Uh, Josh's podcast is great, and uh, and Aaron's as well. Sure. I, I haven't listened to the Adam Agoyan uh, episode yet, but I'm looking forward to listening to that. It's great. Adam does. Uh, I just watched one of his films oh. a couple nights ago, actually. Yeah, he he, um, he comes in pretty loaded. I mean, I kind of likened it to Aaron just kind of pointing the fire hose. He had lots to say. He spoke really rapidly. Lots of content there. And Aaron's just like along for the ride. It was, it was a great interview, really cool, memorable episode. So I'm really happy for Aaron that he had that opportunity. I thought he did a great job of kind of channeling all the information that uh, Mr. Egoyan was kind of laying on us there. Uh, and then Phil, uh, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Uh, what are you up to these days? Uh, not much, you know, just working from home, trying to yeah. trying to watch movies when I can. You know, I, I enjoy the yeah. uh, Criterion cast shows. Uh, I enjoy Josh's show very much. Um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I'm on Letterboxd where I try to kind of uh, log and give a rating to to every movie i see i don't write reviews on there as much as i'd like but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll try to do that a little more and uh yeah no, thank thanks again for having me on well it's really good yeah and, and for you guys uh richard and and uh, david i hope you don't look too aghast at our headlines over here as how the usa is managing its share of the covid <laughs> pandemic <laughs> thankfully the three of us at least josh uh, phil and i are all yep. pretty healthy and hanging in there and uh, doing our best to stay that way. So, yeah, I, I hope everybody. Ha- yeah, go ahead. I haven't left the house since the beginning of March. So, you know. <laughs> wow, wow! You really, you've been that locked down, huh? Yeah, we we our 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 area is still pretty bad. So, Seattle, the Seattle, Greater Seattle area, we started getting it yeah. under control, and now we're back up to over a thousand cases a day. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, Jeez. my wife long, and I are long road ahead of us. There. Very happy to take our deliveries <laughs> <laughs> okay all right well let's go ahead and uh, deliver this episode uh, to your local podcast feed website or however you want to listen to us uh the next two episodes i've got a touch of zen and two english girls 
those are the next two movies, and I'm not sure which one is next. They were both released on November 18th, 1971. So I'll uh, send out my uh, note of Zen. A touch of Zen. Well, yeah, we'll. Oh, that that is a is a great film. Yeah, I love yeah, that. and true and true foes, two English girls. I've got some really great guests lined yeah. up for both episodes. So uh, we'll uh, get the scheduling uh, machine in in gear, and we'll see which one one we line up next. Uh, but for now, this is Criterion Reflections, episode 85, Mon Uncle Antoine. Also keep uh, your eyes open for episode two of Inside the Box, in which Trevor Barrett and I talk about the Apu trilogy. That should be in the pipeline pretty soon. It was recorded a while back. So that's what I've got going on. We'll be talking to you all soon. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We'll see you online. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Right. See you later. Thanks. Thank you. Bye, folks.